just in case anybody has OCD. <laughs> Close that door. And I realize <laughs> there's no way you're going to listen to me if that door's open. <laughs> Couldn't enjoy the worship at all the whole time. You're like looking at that door. Somebody going to come out of there? What's... Oh, wow. I don't know if you caught it uh, when, when uh, Rich led us in that wrong song. Did you catch? It came up on the screen, not our fault. It was brilliant. <laughs> so, um, so today I, I did what I, what I normally do every day. I, I, um, I found Pete. I said, uh, Pete, what would you like me to speak about today? And, uh, and he, he said, um, uh, tell them about Jesus. I said, Jesus? He goes, yeah, Jesus' evil twin. I was like, oh, <laughs> I used to follow him. <laughs> yeah. Um, at least maybe when I look back at my life and think of some of the mistakes I've made and uh, when I didn't know Jesus, uh, I certainly wasn't following Jesus. And if he had an evil twin, I was following him, but, but he doesn't. Thank the Lord. Um, how many of you know that God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks? Ever heard that phrase before? God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And, and so often, people in the church think, God could never use me because I'm, I'm just so messed up. That even as a follower of Christ, I'm so messed up in the things I think about and the temptations I have and in the troubles and the inward turmoil. But God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. See? (laughs) God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. She sells seashells by the seashore. Um, and, and I think that's why it's so encouraging to, to look at some of the relationships in the Bible because they are, they are messed up. They are really messed up. And, and today we're going we're gonna to look at this, this goal that we have. Our goal is, uh, our goal is, and our problem is, and, and we're going we're gonna to look at um, man, a family that just had so, so many problems. We're, we're going to get into the account of, of Jacob. And in, in the Bible, it, it says the account of Jacob, but then the story goes on and it's all about Joseph, his, his son, one of his 12 sons. And the, the reason it does that is because our lives are often told through our children, that that how we live affects them. Uh, the heritage we give, it's, it's carried out through them. And so in the Bible, when it says, when you want to read the story of Jacob, you read the account of Isaac, his father. And when you want to read the story of Isaac, you, you read the account of Abraham. That's, that's how the scriptures do it. And uh, Jacob's family was really, 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 really messed up. It was full of strife and, and favoritism. Uh, Jacob ended up being a cheater and a liar and 
Um, as a result, had to run for his life. His brother wanted to kill him. He spends, if you know the story, he spends years and years serving his uncle, Laban, who, uh, who deceives him and cheats him. And he ends up marrying um, the two of Laban's uh, daughters, the first one, Leah. And he's tricked into that marriage. And uh, he's not really crazy about Leah. Um, and then he marries her sister, Rachel, whom he loves. It's just the delight of his eyes. And, and, um, and then there's this contest between Leah and Rachel, and it's just it's heartbreaking. And they, they, they're at each other's throats, and Rachel, whom Jacob loves, can't seem to produce children. And Leah produces one kid, thinking, okay, my husband will love me because I've produced the firstborn. And she still doesn't have her husband's love. She produces another child and then another and then another. And um, she even gets her maidservant to sleep with her husband so that he'll have children because Rachel in the meantime had, um, had done the same thing, thinking, if I can't produce a child, maybe my maidservant will. And so this is how Jacob's family is growing. Can you see the dysfunction? Yeah, it's, it's just full of dysfunction and strife and everything. And, and finally, Leah has her last child. His name is Judah. And she says, this time, I'll just praise the Lord. This time, I, you know, I've given up on getting my husband's love. But praise God, he's given me four children of my own. I'll just, I'll just praise the Lord. And it's, and it's a, a, a wonderful note in the midst of this turmoil. But then... You go into the scriptures and it goes on to tell the account of Jacob, which is Joseph's story. And in Genesis, 12 chapters are devoted to Joseph's story. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, there's probably no story that, that more resembles the story of Jesus than, than Joseph's story. It's, it's pretty amazing. But there's a break after, after the first chapter of Joseph's story. Before it goes on to tell all the rest, there's this, there's this break. And whenever there's a break in the Bible, we ought to take note. But it is a story that is so whacked out that I, my guess is you've probably never heard it preached about. Uh, maybe you have, and kudos uh, to your pastor if you have, but it's one of those stories you just kind of almost don't know what to do with. It zeroes in on the life of this son of praise, Judah, the fourth son. And um, because it's the father's story and because the father's story is fulfilled through the firstborn, it's interesting that it now focuses on the fourthborn because the firstborn status, we find out, is up for grabs. Jacob looked like he was going to choose Joseph, his favorite son, the son of Rachel, to actually be the one to inherit the family mantle. If you know the story of Joseph and his multicolored coat, Jacob had shown this favoritism towards him, and, and um, the brothers got jealous, and so they sell Joseph into slavery. And now it seems that Jacob's line is in really serious, serious jeopardy. The firstborn son, Reuben, had been disqualified because in the midst of all this family dysfunction, he goes and he sleeps with Rachel's maidservant, who is one of Jacob's concubines. Uh, 
And sometimes she's even referred to as one of Jacob's wives. Imagine that, sleeping with your dad's wife. So he gets disqualified from being the firstborn. Simeon and Levi are the next in line, but they're disqualified because they bring disgrace onto the house by perpetrating an incredibly violent crime against some unsuspecting neighbors. Joseph's out of the picture. For all intents and purposes, he's dead. Jacob doesn't know that he's alive. And he's grieving, and the family just seems to be falling apart. And Judah is callously ignoring the family restrictions on marrying into Canaanite culture. So I'm going to read you the story so so that you can kind of even grasp what I'm talking about. It's in Genesis chapter 38. And it says very simply, at that time Judah left his brothers. There's a, there's a lot behind that, right? When, when you look into the story. I, I don't know if any of you have experienced that in your families. Some of you have big families. And it seems like when, in every big family, there's at least one story like this of somebody who, who's the black sheep of the family or somebody who's disgraced the family in some way or somebody who just has become angry and disillusioned. At that time, Judah left his brothers. He left his family. He said, I can't take it anymore. I'm done. And he went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. And this is a displeasing thing to his family. Um, it's clear through the book of Genesis. There's a number of times when families talk of the displeasure of their children going to marry into other families like the Canaanite families. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. I think they weren't sure what to name him, so they were like, Ur, Ur. <laughs> and uh, she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. Not much better. But then she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. <laughs> it was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We we don't know what the wickedness entailed, but it was enough to incur God's wrath. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. This was actually an ancient practice. It was called, uh, it would end up being called leveret marriage in the Old Covenant under the law, but this is before the law, but it was an ancient practice that the family line was so important that if a brother was to die without giving the wife a child, the next brother was supposed to, to marry her and give her that child, and it would actually be considered the child of the deceased brother. And so because Onan did not want that place. He did not want his family line to be measured through his brother. And I I don't know if he envisioned that eventually he would marry another woman and have two wives. That's a a possibility. We we don't know for sure. But he did not want to get this woman, Tamar, pregnant. 
So Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enneum? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Sometimes our families are so messed up. Sometimes our, our lives are so messed up that we need breakthrough. We, we need God to do something and, and, and to break through. And we see the, the breakthrough that happens in, um, in this passage and in the story. And, and by the way, have you ever had somebody say to you, I don't know how I can believe the Bible. It's just hopelessly out of date. You know, it's like it was written thousands of of years ago, how can it possibly be true? 
just tell them the story of Judah and Tamar. Because when somebody is trying to get you to believe something, they want to paint as beautiful a picture as they can. And in all the ancient cultures, when they would tell the stories of their beginnings, they would paint their heroes in almost God-like terms. But when you get to the Bible, and you get to, to Judah, from whom the line of Israel comes, from whom King David comes, you would expect them to talk about Judah in these glowing terms. But instead, they paint a picture of reality. The, the Bible heroes are incredibly flawed, and, and they're the kind of people that we might want to tell our kids to avoid. And that's, that's why the Bible has something to say to us. In the attempt to understand our purpose, despite all our flaws, we can have hope that, that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Yeah, <laughs> is is that is that the uh, is that the gateway like the that voice? He's got a great voice. Yeah, um, but despite all of our flaws, we can have hope that God will break through. That that God will lead us to break through to be the kind of people that we yearn to be. Because our goal is, and our problem is life, but our God is bigger than life. Our God is able to bring breakthroughs. So I want, I want to talk about how this account leads to some, um, some pretty incredible breakthroughs. The, the first breakthrough that we see in this account is cultural. The, the Bible is incredibly countercultural, and a lot of people look at the Old Covenant and say it's, it's, so, um, it's so restrictive. And, but, you know, in its, in its time, in its culture, it was absolutely um, Countercultural. It, it was, I mean, feminism begins there, right? In, in, um, in ancient Judaism, certain rights just did not exist for women or in those ancient cultures, but in ancient Judaism, rights were afforded to women that none of these other cultures had. There was the right to a certificate of divorce. If you were abandoned or abused by your husband and, and the husband would leave you, in most cultures, you would still be considered married and no man would touch you. And so you would end up becoming desperately poor and needy. But in, um, in, Jude, in Judaism, through Moses, God commanded that a certificate of divorce would be given so that woman could show that she is no longer tied to that man. She could be legitimately, in the eyes of the community, remarried and therefore cared for. It also codified levered marriage, the, the idea that, that your offspring um, and your, your line should be carried out by your brothers. And this was for the sake of the woman. Because if she didn't have children, again, she would be destitute. So in Deuteronomy 25, 5, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead men shall not be married 
outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. God cares about families. and He cares about women. Now, just because it was a law doesn't mean it was always practiced. And so we see that, that Ur um, and Onan didn't practice it, and Judah was not going to honor it. And what he did was wicked in sight. The woman Tamar was wronged, and God knew it. So Judah um, tells her to live as a widow and says he's going to give Sheila, but he's got no intention of, of coming through. So you see what he does. He disguises himself, or she disguises herself, rather, as a prostitute, and she takes matters into her own hands. And, and we see what happens. Judah has a child by her. And I want to focus in here on, on verse 24 when Judah gets the news, because it really tells us something about the state of Judah's heart. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Throughout the course of human history, too often women have really borne the brunt of unjust double standards. It's okay for Judah to go and sleep with a prostitute. But if someone in his family is guilty of prostitution, he says, kill her. And what's worse, it's just over the top. It's not, it's not just a stoning, which was relatively quick. He's saying, let's burn her to death. This man's heart has become so hard and so disillusioned and so embittered that he wants to take it out on this woman. But in this case, she, she reveals that it was he who slept with her by saying it's the man who owns this staff and this seal and this cord. And Judah recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. God protected her. See, the book of Genesis provides for us the means for, for cultural breakthrough. Martin Luther King, when he broke through in America, he did so by appealing to the laws and God's standards, to the Bible. He, he appealed to Christians to believe what they believe, to actually believe what they believe. And whenever we believe what we say we believe, we stand against culture wherever culture is wrong. But that's not the only breakthrough here. This, this passage also challenges the ancient cultural practice of primogeniture. That is the idea that, that you just pour out all the blessings on the firstborn. The firstborn gets the special honor and the treatment and the double inheritance. And, and just by means of being firstborn, they're the ones who has God's seal of approval on it. We see that in the story that was told the other night. We see it in Isaac being younger than Ishmael in Jacob being younger than Esau, and Joseph being younger than his ten brothers. God says, I'm going to work through whom I'm going to work through. 
And that's, that's hope for us. Because so often we look at ourselves and again, we sit in the church and we think, God could never work through me. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the talents. I don't have the abilities. That person over there, yeah, God could work through them. God's favor is on them, but through me, no. But each of these was chosen by God, just as we are through Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that you're chosen? How many of you know that you're saints? Raise your hand if you know that you're a saint. Come on. How many saints do we have here today? You know, saint in the making. Yeah. Do you know that when, when Paul writes his letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, he says, to all the saints, he's not talking about just one or two or three individuals among them who seem to have a, a special anointing upon them. He's saying, if you are chosen in Christ, if you believe you've been made holy, you've been sanctified, you're a saint. You're a saint. God has chosen you. And so there's this, this breakthrough that breaks through all of our cultural presuppositions. And in our culture today, we believe in saints big time. And I'm talking outside of the church, right? What does our culture do? It constantly is trying to lift up heroes for, for people to emulate and say that those are the favored ones. And the gospel breaks through and says, Christina, you're the favored one. Brent, you are the favored one. Betsy, you're the favored one. Murray, you are the favored one. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the good news? God's favor is upon you. The, the gospel breaks through our cultural presuppositions, and it sets us free. It also provides for us personal breakthrough. So we, we see that that um, we see that Judah is is very embittered, has left his family and has had enough of the family favoritism, took part in getting rid of Joseph, is now separate from his brothers, has married this Canaanite, has wicked sons, doesn't even seem to, to grieve over their death like his dad did, comforts himself with a prostitute. He's callous, he's disillusioned, he's sensual, and he's an uncompassionate man. God can't use a person like that. Oh, yes, he can. God is not done with him. When he says she is more righteous than I, it's a recognition that she's in more She's more in line with God's view of life and God's view of justice than he has been. It is, it is that wake-up moment for Judah. It's that turnaround time. He recognizes God's hand in all of this, and it transforms him. It, it literally transforms him. Now, you might not think it as you read this passage, but... But we know that it transforms him because if he had not been willing to change, he would have applied the double standard. I mean, people do that all the time in this world. He, he would have had her burned to death. He, he would have said, she tricked me. She deserves to die. But instead, he steps back and he sees God's hand in it. And her story becomes a part of the family lore. It's not covered up. 
you have to believe that, that Judah went on to tell this story to show God's grace and his mercy. You know, there are things that take place in our families that never see the light of day, isn't there? There's a lot of stuff I'd never tell you about myself. But the fact that this was in the Bible proves that it was a turning point for Judah. It was a breakthrough in his life and in the life of his whole family. And in fact, later on, we see that it has such an effect that Judah actually becomes a compassionate man. Later on in the story of Joseph, if you know the story, there's a famine in the land, and the brothers are sent by their father Jacob to to Egypt, and Judah has rejoined the family. And they're sent to Egypt because they've heard that there's food in Egypt because a ruler has been raised up in Egypt, the second in command, the prime minister of Egypt, who had ordered that storehouses be built in preparation for this famine because God had shown it to him. Of course, what they don't know is that this ruler is Joseph. Um, Joseph, whom they had hated because he had had dreams that his brothers would bow down to him, and he had foolishly told them the dreams, and that's why they sold him into slavery. So they, they head into Egypt And they're bowing before Joseph, who probably has a shaved head at this point to look like all the rest of the Egyptians. And and they don't recognize him at all. And by this time, Rachel has had one more son, a little boy named Benjamin. And Joseph asks his brothers, who again don't know, don't know that he's, he's one of them. He asks them through an interpreter speaking in in Egyptian. Which, by the way, I'm half Egyptian. Did you all know that? <laughs> I am half Egyptian, so this is, this is a deeply meaningful ancestral story for me. And, uh, and he speaks to them through an interpreter in Egyptian, and the interpreter speaks to them in Hebrew. And he asks them, How, how's your father? And they tell him about the father. And is there anyone else in your family? And they tell about his brother, Benjamin. He says, he loads them up with some food, and he says, but Come back for more and bring your brother Benjamin. Well, they go back and and Jacob doesn't want to send Benjamin because he doesn't want to lose him. And he's worried that something might happen to him on the journey. He is now the object of his affections as Rachel was his favorite wife and she has passed away. And, And so he's pouring all his hope on this poor young son. But they end up with no food and they've got to go back and they beg their father. And Judah swears to his father, let us take Benjamin. I promise you my life for his if anything happens to him. So they come back to, to Egypt with Benjamin. And if you know the story, Joseph um, gives double portions to Benjamin as they have a a feast and a meal and everything. He loads up their their donkeys with all kinds of food and puts double the amount and and silver and gold um, on Benjamin's donkeys. And, And then he slips into Benjamin's sack this royal cup, his own royal cup. And and they leave. And then he, he calls his servants to say, go after them, make them stop, because someone has stolen my royal cup. 
And so they go through all the sacks and they're saying, no, none of us have done this. This is a mistake. And they come to Benjamin's sack and there's the cup. And he says, Benjamin, if you know um, Joseph and his making technicolor dream coat, he thinks, Benjamin, you nasty youth. Anyway, and uh, he takes the cup and says, Benjamin, how could you have done this? And they're like, no, no, don't take him. And he throws him in prison. And they're saying, no, please don't take Benjamin. And Judah begs and says, take me instead. Take me instead. And he goes to prison in place of Benjamin. And it's then that Joseph knows that his brothers are changed men. That God, over the course of the years, over the course of the heartache, over the course of the favoritism, over the course of the dysfunction and the sickness and the the sexual sin, that God has worked his redemption in their lives. For Judah has saved the family. It was a breakthrough for Judah. And it's recognized finally by Jacob. As Jacob is dying in Genesis 49, he pronounces blessings on the sons. And this is what he says of Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He was speaking of Jesus. He's saying, through you, Judah, God is going to send that promised Messiah, the one who would crush the serpent's head. He's going to take up the scepter, and the obedience of the nations will be his. The obedience of a bunch of Norwegians and Swedes and Scandinavians, don't you know, who live in Minnesota, are going to give their hearts to this Jesus. The obedience of a bunch of Southerners in Raleigh, North Carolina, y'all, we're going to give our obedience to this Jesus. The obedience of Rwandans and of Chinese, and of Indians. It's going to come to Jesus through Judah, through, through this promise. And that's why the final breakthrough is the ultimate breakthrough, of which all breakthroughs are simply an echo. If you've ever had a breakthrough in your life, it's just an echo of the breakthrough that comes through Jesus Christ. So what is this promised king Jesus like? This one who has the scepter, who has the obedience of the nations, who appears to be this mighty, mighty king who can enforce his will upon any that he chooses. Isaiah says of him, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You know, in the day when, when, 
when Jesus does return, when we're in, in the big club room and we're giving testimony, Judah's going to stand up and he's going to say, he didn't snuff me out when he should have, when he could have. He didn't snuff me out. David writes of him, he is close to the brokenhearted and rescues those whose spirits are crushed. On that day, there'll be prostitutes who stand up. Among them, Tamar. And she will say, he didn't snuff me out. He, he was close to my broken heart. He rescued me when I was crushed. You see, here's what's really amazing about this story. Here's why it ought to be preached all the time in churches. Jesus is not just the descendant of Judah. He is the descendant of Judah through Tamar. When she became pregnant with those twins, the first one, Zira, sticks his hand out. He's going to be the firstborn, and, and the, the, the ribbon is tied around his hand to say, he's the one on whom the family promise ought to come, but Perez breaks out first. And it's through Perez that Jesus' line comes. Jesus is the king of breakthroughs. He's the king of breakthroughs. He's the ultimate, ultimate bringer of transformation for our lives if we really want to love as God has intended for us to love. we got to have the lover of all, the lover of our souls who's broken through for us. Judah wanted to withhold his only remaining son, but God didn't. God gave his only begotten son, his firstborn. And I realized last night as we were looking at those questions that that fourth question was, was um, kind of unclear. I, I realized as I was looking at it, I, that wasn't a very well-worded question. In fact, Pete, Pete was talking to me about, you know, that question. It just didn't. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reduce your pay by about 5%. <laughs> We'll see, you know, we'll see what goes on the rest of the week, and there'll be demerits and things. Maybe you can earn it back. But anyway, um, Colossians tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, that he is the image of the invisible God, and in him all things hold together. And so because he is the firstborn, because he's the son who comes through, because we have in the Bible all these examples of firstborn sons who fail miserably. We get to pin and hang everything on the firstborn son who came through for us. On, on the father who did not withhold his only son. And he, and he doesn't withhold today. If you're one of those sitting in church that says, this is good and I like being around it. I want you to know it's personal. That God is looking at you and he's, and he's saying to you in the midst of all this worship, of all these giftings and all these callings to ministry, he's saying, I've chosen you. I gave my firstborn for you. If you were the only one in the world, I would have done it just for you. 
I love you that much, and I want you in the family. And I want you fully enjoying the rights that you have as my children. Um, just in closing, I want to share with you something that a lady in my church said to me the other day. She's very involved in healing prayer ministry, and, uh, and it's just her delight to see people who are, are bound be set free. And, uh, and so many times in the church, a lot of us are, are bound, you know? And a lot of us, she says, have a lot of baggage. And, and she says, you know what? Jesus wants to take your baggage wants to give you luggage because with luggage luggage is for trips you packed your luggage for this trip right and you're excited about it and you think about all the good things you're going to do and the fun you're going to have and when you if you go to Paris or if you go to Rome you, you you pack your luggage baggage is all the junk that we carry Jesus wants to take your baggage and he wants to give you luggage so I want to encourage you to receive it. Um, I, I want to I close by singing um, that, that song that we had, and you can put up the, the chorus for it. I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned, right? What's the name of that song? The Stand. Is it The Stand? Yeah. Is Rich around? Oh, there he is. Do you want to just jump on guitar and... And play that. And what I, what I want you to do as these guys find it, and that was perfect. Good job. All right. And it was not your fault. Um, oh, you know how you sang the wrong song? Well, up on the screen behind you, it said, it's not our fault. When, when they switch to the... Yeah. <laughs> but that's the assumption, you know? It's the sound, guys. <laughs> right? Yeah, he is rocking it. So what, what I want to encourage you to do in a moment, we're, we're going to stand and, and we're going to sing this. And, you know, a lot of times we sing songs and we don't actually do them. You know, we sing about our hands held high and we, we don't do it. And, um, and it's okay. You can kind of do it in your heart and everything. But there is, there, there is something about allowing your physical body to do what your words are singing. And in doing that, holding your hands open to receive from the Lord the luggage that He has from you and to give to the Lord the baggage that He wants to give. So I want you to, to stand and to have that image as we sing it and as we raise our hands and our hearts to the Lord. So I want to encourage you to get Pentecostal here today, all right? Let's go. <clears throat> so I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all I'll send my soul Lord to you surrendered all I am is yours 
I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all I am is yours. All I am is yours. All I am is yours. And all I am is yours. Now just holding your hands up before the Lord. Heavenly Father, gracious God who gave us so generously your firstborn son, Jesus, who loved us so much that he gave his life upon the cross for our sins. Lord, so often we don't really believe that. We ask that you would cause true faith to grow in our hearts, that we would believe it to the depths of our souls that we would allow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to take this baggage from us. And Lord, I ask that Your Spirit now would move through this crowd with each person whom You know intimately. Where there are wounds that have been deep and buried and long hidden, we ask that now you would reach down and take them gently. Lord, where there are fears and failures that have for too long marked us, for too long we have allowed to define us, we ask that you would reach down and gently take them. Where there are cords that bind, heart ties and soul ties to other people in our past, either other people who are very negative influences in our lives, other people that we found ourselves bound to emotionally, sexually, intellectually, whatever it might be, Lord, in ways that we thought were good at the time but have ultimately done damage or divided our hearts. Lord, we ask that you take them and you break them now by the power of Jesus' name. He's the name above all names, Lord. He's the King of kings. He's the one with the scepter. He's the one who crushes Satan under our feet. For those who have been oppressed by the devil in some way, who have believed his lies, his hatred, Lord, we ask that now his words would just fall to the ground, lifeless. Lord, free us completely. That we might come into the glory of your family. 
and walk as children of light, as brothers and sisters of our favorite firstborn, our big brother Jesus. And now, Lord, allow us to receive the luggage that you have for us, those special gifts, those special perceptions, that inward change of heart, an outpouring of love, words of insight and knowledge and wisdom and grace, words of comfort and purity, of light and grace. Equip us through and through, Lord, with the luggage you have for the journey that you have for us. We realize we're on another leg. Let us walk in confidence with our children, whether they're walking with you or not, Lord. Let us be confident that you are with us and you love them. As we go into our workplaces, that we would go in the power of your spirit. We'd be equipped for whatever comes our way. Lord, as we walk through whatever steps you have for us in this journey, let us know that we are equipped by your grace and your grace alone. We receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.